Well, let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 15. Of all the honored names found in the Scripture, few are as cherished as the name of Israel. That name was given to the converted Jacob, Jacob who was a a deceiver and a, a bit of a rascal, had a confrontation with God in which he wrestled with God and was at the end of that wrestling match subdued and as a result radically transformed by his encounter with God. And it's the name that denotes the people, the people descended from Jacob, from Israel, a people chosen, gathered, brought into a covenant relationship with God, the people to whom God says, I am your God, you are my people. But names don't always accurately reflect the bearer of them. The name Israel, throughout much of the history recorded in the Holy Scripture, denotes a a people who for a long period as a nation did not share the transformed life of the patriarch. In fact, the prophets of Israel functioned as covenant prosecutors, prosecuting the case of Yahweh versus Israel. That really is the story of the Old Testament. Whether you look at Elijah and Elisha, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Zechariah, these prophets are prosecuting the case of God against Israel. Regularly, they confront the fundamental hypocrisy that laid the very heart of the Israel that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, an Israel that, on the one hand, recited its creed, God alone is God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And yet who regularly, along with that profession, that creed, that confession of their faith in the one God, regularly alongside his worship, they never rejected him, but they added on alongside him the worship of other gods, the gods of the Canaanites and the other nations round about, and they imported into their cultic life the high places celebrating Baal or, or other gods, Molech. They sacrificed at times their sons and their daughters on the altar as a sacrifice to these foreign gods. They regularly consulted these foreign gods. They listened to the prophets of these other nations, as well as at the same time making the same profession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the outcome of that schizophrenic worship was ultimately that Israel, the 12 tribes, were shattered into two parts. Northern Israel, the 10 tribes to the north, eventually, under the Assyrians, vanishes from the face of history. They are lost to history, obliterated, intermarried, dispersed, losing any sense of their identity. The southern two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, are taken into exile in Babylon. And when they do return to their land and their city, Things are never the same again. They build a temple, but it's nothing like Solomon's temple. 
They regain the land, but it's nothing like the land that Solomon had. They build up a future, but their future is never the independent Israel it was once before. They are under Persian rule, Greek rule, Roman rule, and then in AD 70, they lose it all again, and they're scattered to the ends of the earth. Today, the name Israel is applied to the homeland of the Jewish people, an ally, a faithful ally of the United States, and and one nation who, because of its history, is a nation that I believe we're obligated to protect and defend from its adversaries in the region. But tonight, we're not using the name Israel the way it's used politically today. Tonight, we're looking at the name Israel given to Jacob signified, signifying the people who came from Jacob, Israel the church that we find in the Old Testament. When the Messiah did come, he found only the rump of Israel, Judah, a little petty statelet under the hegemony of Rome. Its people were longing for better days forecast by the prophets, By the time Jesus comes, they're long long gotten over their idolatry. They will never turn to it again. The exile cured them of that. They never, ever again turned to idolatry. But that did not mean that they were over their rebellion. Their religious and national leadership were not ready when the Messiah came. And John has already reported in chapter 12 their response to him and his response to them. Let me read to you from John chapter 12. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, that is, the Jews, they still did not believe in him. So that the word of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, who has believed what he has heard from us. They turned away from their own Messiah. And in this stage of John's gospel, he has now turned away from them as a political entity, as a nation. He has turned away from them to the remnant, that is, to the believing core of the nation of Israel. It's the Apostle Paul who helps us to understand that Israel, the nation, never constituted the sum total of all of God's elect, that there was always a remnant of believers within the nation, those who in their hearts enthroned God as God. When Elijah, the prophet, thinks he's the only one left, that it's come down to just one, God comes and reassures him that there are So many thousands who have not yet bowed the knee to the false god Baal. Isaiah, in his book, constantly refers to this this remnant within the covenant people, believing Israel, within national Israel, the church within the church. And what we find here in John's gospel is that Jesus, at chapter 13, verse 1, turns away from the nation and turns towards the remnant A remnant which at this stage is represented by 12 people that Jesus himself has chosen. 12 people representing the 12 tribes 
of Israel, continuing Israel. Jesus, chapter 13, 1, knew that the time had come for him to depart out of this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So Jesus is now with his own. <clears throat> and it's that that forms then the background to this great claim of Jesus in chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. So we're going to look tonight at the vine. If we have time, we'll look at the Father, and it's very unlikely that we'll get any further than that. So let's look at the vine first of all. Glance back to chapter 14, the end of chapter 14. It's likely that by this time, the disciples and Jesus are on the move. At the end of at the end of the last chapter, you'll notice he says, rise, let's go from here. And the likelihood is that they have now gotten up, they've left the room, but he has not stopped talking. He is talking to them as they go on the way. He's done that all their life, the time that they've spent with him. Uh, on the way, he's been speaking to them and instructing them. The rabbis did that. Jesus is a rabbi, teaches his disciples while they're on the way. This is the, I guess, this is the, uh, the ultimate of that kind of scenario you find very often in movies or in television where somebody says, walk with me, while they tell them what it is that's on their mind. I love, I, I love doing that, actually. It gives me a sense of power when I say that to the staff, walk with me. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. Jesus is walking with his men, and as they're walking uh, together, Jesus plus his men, they are walking either through or adjacent to the temple grounds. They would go that way in order to get where they're going, which is a garden that they often went to to chill out and to have time together. In that garden, he will be arrested. They're on their way to that spot, a spot that Judas, who is going to betray him, knew very well. One of the things we know it, that it is that it was the Passover time. And during Passover time, the gates to the temple were left open overnight. Normally they were closed, but during Passover they were left wide open. So that as they passed, they would be able to glance into the temple precincts. And there, in full view they would be able to see the massive golden vine for which that Herodian temple was noted. The image was powerful. And it's almost inevitable that as they pass that, Jesus, nodding to it, says to them, I am the true vine. Now, the vine in the temple represented Israel. It represented the people of God. In the Targum, uh, we have a reference to the Messiah, uh, that the vine also represents the Messiah. And in the Targum, the Jewish Targum, it refers to Psalm 80, where the Messiah himself is referred to as the vine. So the vine represents Israel and Israel's Messiah. And it isn't hard to find, as you go through the Bible, it isn't hard to find references to Israel either as a vine or as a vineyard. Now, why, why, Jesus, why does Jesus use the vine metaphor here? Why does he use it, and why does he use it here? Well, let me kind of pause for a moment and say this, that the first observation we make is that this is the last 
in John's gospel, this is the last of a series of I am claims that Jesus makes. We've already noted this phrase, I am, literally in the Greek, I, I am, ego, I, I me, I am, the double I. And this is a reference, of course, to the repeated claim of the God of Israel. We opened worship tonight, and I quoted just one of the many references, for example, from the book of Isaiah. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. I, even I, have spoken, it goes on to say. I, I am the creator. I, I am the ruler. We find that over and over again in the book of Isaiah. This is the name by which God introduces himself. You remember to Moses when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says to him, I am that I am. And this is the phrase that Jesus uses deliberately. He uses it to identify himself with the God of Israel. I, I am. That's what he's doing, for example, when he says to the people earlier on in John's gospel, before Abraham was, before he existed, I, I am. And here he's doing it again. Not only is he doing it again, but as he's done earlier, he uses this divine identifier and he links it with... uh, expectations from biblical prophecy. So, for example, earlier on he had said, I am the bread from heaven. I'm the, the heavenly manna. I'm the one who's come from heaven to satisfy your need, to, prov- to provide for you, to br- give you eternal life. I am the fulfillment of the bread from heaven. Again, he had said, I am, I, I am the light of the world. Well, Israel was called to be the light to the Gentiles, but Jesus takes on himself that role, that title, he applies it to himself. Earlier on chapter 10, he said, I, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd is the the shepherd of Israel. The, The king of Israel was the shepherd of Israel. The shepherds of Israel had let Israel down, and so there was this expectation that God would send a king, a a ruler, a leader, who would be a good king, a perfect king, who would fulfill all that kingship requires him to do and to be, and so on. And Jesus is saying, look, all those shepherds let you down, all those pastors let you down, all those people sent to rule you and guide you and instruct you and lead you, they let you down, but... I am the good shepherd. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's quoting from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And he's saying, I I am the one to deliver the expectation of that future kingdom in which you will have resurrection and you will have life. So now he claims, I am the true vine. So instead of asking the question, why did Jesus use this metaphor? What is it about the vine and the garden and growing grapes and producing wine? All of which, of course, is involved in the vine and the vineyard. Why have a vineyard and vines 
to grow grapes without using them to make wine. That was a, one of the great things that the, the Jews did with, with that. And they were great makers of good wine. But that isn't the point of the metaphor. We've learned from the use of this expression, I, I am, elsewhere in John's gospel, that they're all tied to what has been revealed in the Bible. So we don't have far to go to interpret the significance of this expression. Well, there's, there's no need to go any further than the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, as I've said, the vine and the vineyard language is a symbol of Israel. Psalm 80 puts it like this. You brought a vine out of Egypt. A reference to the Exodus. God brought Israel out of Egypt. And he prays, the psalmist prays, for God to, to look on Israel. Have regard, he says, he prays, for this vine, the stock that your right hand has planted. He's praying for Israel, that God would have regard for her, that God would guard her. And he reminds God that Israel exists by his purpose plan and his action. And so in the life of Israel, when they built their, the tabernacle, for example, when they later built the temple, they adorned both the tabernacle and the temple with a golden vine with large clusters of grapes. And that's the first clue, really, to what's going on here. Because as you go through the Old Testament, you discover once you get to the prophets who are, who are conducting the prosecution against Israel, you discover more and more as you go through the, the Old Testament that the vine image comes to represent Israel's failure to produce grapes. Uh, that is, Israel's failure to produce good fruit to God. Now, one of the things we've noticed as we've gotten through John's gospel, and especially around this part of John's gospel, is that John is very influenced by the prophet Isaiah. It's pure coincidence that we're doing Isaiah in the morning and doing John at night. And, uh, but, but John is heavily influenced by the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah, in chapter 5 of his book, uses the vine and the vineyard metaphor to describe Israel. He, he pens a love song. Let me sing a song for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, that's God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat for it. He looked for, ye, for it to yield grapes. It was God's work and God's expectation. But Isaiah goes on to say it yielded wild grapes. And in case we miss the import of the interpretation, Isaiah goes on in Isaiah 5 verse 7 to explain the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Israel are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice and he found, behold, bloodshed and outcry. And as the prophecy goes on, we find increasingly... Israel's failure as a servant of God for righteousness. And behold, God. Israel's 
total failure as a servant of God. And so what God needs is another servant, a champion, a righteous servant with whom God is well pleased, even delighted. And in Isaiah 49, we hear him speak of the role of this individual servant. The servant speaks, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. He said to me, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now let me tell you, in John's gospel, all those themes are there. Chapter 4, the people of Samaria find Jesus in their midst speaking to this woman at the well, and they come to hear him and to meet him, and they go away saying, surely we have found the Savior of the world. In chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And now he finally reveals himself. I am the true vine. Isaiah was predicting and quoting for a future individual who comes as the Lord of Israel to save Israel and the nations, to be a light to the Gentiles. And in the flow of John's gospel, Jesus makes much of his status as a servant. In fact, this whole conversation that's recorded both in the upper room and now on the way and later in the garden, this whole conversation is built on the foundation of an action that Jesus took, that we looked at back in chapter 13. It was as if Jesus was bringing this idea of him as the servant and giving them a kind of acted-out clue as to where they should look in the Bible to find out what he was up to. You remember the story? He gets up from his place. He takes aside his outer garment. He puts around his waist the towel, the badge of the slave. He pours water in a basin. He gets down in his hands and knees. He does what the slave does and washes their feet. He is shoving it into their face that he has come to be the servant, the servant of the Lord. He is single-handedly coming to fulfill Israel's destiny as the true vine, as the one man who does what Israel did not do. This is why he goes early on in his career, as he begins his public ministry, he follows Israel's journey in reverse from Israel back to Jordan, the entry point into the promised land across the Jordan into the desert where they were tempted for 40 years, and there he is tempted for 40 days. And Israel in the desert, in that wilderness, 
had turned to these foreign gods, the gods from Egypt, they'd snuck away, and the gods of the nations round about, and they had failed. And there in that wilderness, Jesus goes back in time to Deuteronomy, where that temptation and test took place. And quoting again and again and again from Deuteronomy, he takes Israel's part in the test, facing Satan himself. And again and again and again, as the true Israel, the true vine, he obeys where Israel disobeyed. He is faithful where Israel was unfaithful. He is true where Israel, the nation, was false. Jesus is acting on behalf of the people in order to bring them to himself. This answers a question which has been raised by the discerning reader by Jesus' quite blatant rejection of Israel the nation. This is what he said to them back in chapter 12. While you, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid from them. So when Jesus says, chapter 15, I am the true vine. He's telling them, you see, that he has come to embody and represent the people of God. He's come to represent them. From now on, what really matters is that people are connected to Jesus. He is the defining person. As the true vine, God's people find their identity, their life, their significance by their connection to him. What was it the servant was to do? He was to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. He was to bring back the preserved of Israel. He was to be a light to the nations so that salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is gathering Israel to himself. By the time you get to John 17, Jesus is praying for all those who will believe in him through the message of the apostles to the ends of the earth. Already in chapter 12, some Greeks have come looking for Jesus. Foreigners outside of Israel come looking for Jesus as a kind of trailblazing example. And Jesus picks up on it, and he says, now is the Son glorified. God has begun the work of bringing Israel and the nations, gathering them, gathering them together, assembling them together, joining them to him. Jesus himself is what Israel was meant to be. Jesus himself is continuing Israel. So that now, whether you have Jewish roots or Gentile roots, what is important is your connection to Messiah Jesus. The people of God find their identity in Him. He is a Jew. Earlier on in chapter 4, Jesus has said to this Samaritan woman, you don't get it. Salvation is of the Jews. 
Isaiah has said there'll come a day when people from all over the world will hang on to the robe of one Jew and will ask them, how do I get to know God? Jesus is the one Jew who brings salvation to Israel and the nations. We are all in a relationship with God if we're believers because of our connection to that one Jew from in whom salvation for the nations is found. So what do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus embodies and represents the covenant people of God. He's acting in their place. From now on, the covenant people of God, whether Jew or Gentile, Jew first, then Gentile, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, through their connection with Jesus, become part of the Israel of God. Continuing Israel. So Jesus is the focus now of God's plan of salvation. Faith in Jesus is the primary mark of membership of God's covenant people. Not genetics. It actually never was genetics. If you look back into the history of Israel, you find people like Ruth, Rahab, and others who were Gentiles. It never was about ethnicity. It was about faith in the God who'd revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to Moses. And that God has come now in Christ And faith in Jesus is the primary mark of membership in God's covenant people. Jesus is the channel through whom all the blessings for the nations come. And that new messianic community is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. A paradigm shift is taking place in which faith in Jesus has replaced keeping the law as a point of reference. So the vine language is covenant language. It represents the people of God. And Jesus is the great representative of the people of God. He is the one who who acts in our place. And because he's been obedient, our connection with him brings us into the very presence of God. Now, it's in light of that then that Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus is not denying his deity here. He's pointing out yet again that in the economy of redemption, he he has voluntarily and for a finite period assumed for the purposes of saving his people a subordinate role to his father. It's important to hear that. He has for a finite period voluntarily assumed a subordinate role to his father for the purposes of saving his people. There are people in evangelicalism today who who kind of teach the eternal subordination of the son, that the son was always subordinate to the father. And a kind of eternal hierarchy, father, son, Holy Spirit. But that's not the kind of God that we find in Scripture. God is God. You can't have degrees of godness. 
What's revealed in Scripture is what the ancient creeds recognize. That there is, a, there is a movement. There is the Father begetting, the Son, the begotten, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. But there's no eternal subordination. The Godhead has one mind. The Godhead has one purpose. The Godhead is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But for a finite period, Jesus has made himself a servant. So what Jesus is saying here then is this. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. The father takes responsibility to tend, discipline, and promote the growth of his people. I don't want to say too much about this tonight, but um, gardening is a great hobby to have. I, I love it myself. I love to come home from work in the summer and walk out into the garden and see what my wife has done and observe it and, and enjoy it. It's a great hobby. Um, but we're, we're told that the father is not that kind of gardener. He's a hands-on gardener. Whether it's in creation, when he makes everything there is, he makes the plants. And uh, he tells the plants to bring forth their fruit. And they do. Or in redemption, where he looks for the fruit of righteousness in the lives of his redeemed people. He looks for the fruit of repentance. He looks for the fruit that we produce, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, and so on. Fruit-bearing is the Father's primary purpose. And not only is it his purpose, but he is in supreme control of its process. Now you see what he goes on to say. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. The Father does that. The Father removes unproductive branches from the vine. Now, what is that telling you? It's telling you that in this new community, in this new community, there are those who, as there were in ancient Israel, professors, that is, they profess the faith, but they do not possess the faith. Or we might say they're church members, but they actually do not have the heart. They're not, their heart isn't in it. There are people who are kind of apparently connected to Christ, but in whom there is no life, no vital life. They have not been born again, they're just connected. Maybe they were brought up in the church. They're connected, but they've not been born again. The vital life of God is not there. Maybe they join church for all kinds of reasons, but the vital life of God is not there. You often don't recognize that it's not there because they look as if they're connected. Only the Father knows, and ultimately only the Father will remove them. Look at Judas. Judas was there. He was at the table. He was by Jesus' side. He even was part of the outreach work. He could even preach a reasonable sermon as he was a prophet. He could, he could go around and he could, in Jesus' name, heal people. And he had a position of responsibility. He was a treasurer. But he no more knew Jesus
he had no experience of Jesus. He didn't understand anything about who Jesus was. He was not living, livingly connected to Jesus. On the other hand, if the Father takes away the branch that does not bear fruit, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that, he may, that it may bear more fruit. Think of Peter. You know, Peter, what Peter did was every bit as bad as what Judas did. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter, who was number one in the apostolic band, close to the Lord, denied him three times. Peter was as bad as Judas in what he did. But with this difference, there was life in Judas, in in Peter. There was no life in Judas. There was life in Peter. The evidence of life was this. He knew when he had sinned. He knew what he had done. And in due course, God uses the brokenness of that man to do something marvelous in his heart. What does the Father do as he looks after the church, as he looks after his people? The Father who justifies also judges. He disciplines. He purifies his people so that they might bring forth fruit. Uh, I'm going to stop there. But before I stop, dead on the tracks, just so as you know. We need to ask the question, how is it that the Father does this work? How does he clean our lives up? How does he make sure that we are in a position where we're bringing forth the kind of fruit which is spiritual fruit, i.e. character, think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. How does he do that? Well, the clue is in verse 3. You are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. The Father uses the word of the Son to redeem, to judge, to purify, to cleanse, his people. That's what he does. What does he do to chop off the dead branches? What does he use there? He uses the word of the Son. He uses the message of the Son to judge those who are sitting under it, who aren't hearing it. He uses the very same word to judge as he uses to justify. That's the way it works. The very same sermon that can bring you to God and reconcile you to God and save you will be condemning someone else in the same congregation because they're rejecting the message. They're not hearing the message. They're not receiving the message. It's a very solemn thing. Whenever you stand up to preach, you're very conscious that the words that you say will be life to life to some and death to death to others. And the issue that separates 
is whether we hear when the Lord Jesus speaks to the churches in the book of Revelation, that's what he says to them. If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And perhaps tonight, God's word for you is simply this. Are you hearing the word of God? I mean, does it touch your heart? Does it change your mind about things? Does it inform and shape the way you look at the world? Uh, And do you find that through the word of God as time passes, as you look back, for example, over the last year, over the last few months, there are incremental changes in your life. You know you're not perfect. You'll never be perfect. You You know you're not always obedient. You will never always be obedient. But is the Word of God so having an effect on you that it matters to you whether you're obedient or not, whether you're growing or not, whether there are incremental changes in your way of thinking about things or not? That's often the first way we begin to see that God is at work through His Word to produce in us the fruit, which is the evidence of life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that tonight as we, all of us here, as your people listen to this word, it comes home to us, uh, just into our hearts and lives. Here we are, and many of us, we are Christian people. We belong to the Israel of God. Many of us are Gentiles. We've been grafted in. We're not natural, natural members of the Israel of God. We are grafted in by your grace. And we pray, Lord, that this evening, as we've heard this word taught, and there's more to learn from it, Lord, we pray that you would help us to just look at our lives to see if there's evidence of changing our way of thinking or perhaps our behaving, or at least that when we hear the word of God, we know it to be the word of God and we feel its power. We pray that you would help us to see those things And to give you thanks that you are so good, Heavenly Father, that you come and you use the word of Christ. Rather than coming with a big stick, you come with a word to cleanse us. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. That we may heartily praise you and worthily serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.